That's Argentine-American broadcaster Andres Cantor celebrating Argentina's men's World Cup win this weekend. It's the South American country's third time being crowned global champions and the first for its star player, Lionel Messi. The game was one of the most exciting World Cup finals in recent memory, but there's been plenty of drama off the field, too. Stories about human rights abuses and corruption have plagued the 2022 tournament in Qatar and for years before the games even started. It's got soccer fans, analysts, and officials wondering, what does the future of the beautiful game's most important tournament look like? I'm Nyla Boodoo of Axios Today, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. We'll discuss the World Cup after the break. Stay with us. Let's get into the conversation by speaking with NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, who joins us from Qatar. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Nyla. How are you? Oh, so much fun after watching that game yesterday, Tom. Let's start with that actual play. What a match. How good do you think yesterday's final will rank in the history books? Um, I think it will rank at the top. I think it was um, – I've been doing this um, f- uh, for about 20, 20 years, over 20 years. I've never seen anything like it. And what Andres Contor said there, that tape you had of him – yeah, what he said. I mean, it was just, uh, it was absolutely unbelievable. And it was a story that was so dramatic. Um, the, you know, certainly if you watched, um, after watching the first 80 minutes, it didn't look like it was going to happen that way, but it did. And I think it was very fitting that Lionel Messi should be, you know, forced to wait and suffer even more to have a 2-0 lead and then lose that lead, have a 3-2 lead and lose that lead and then, and then get to the absolutely nerve wracking penalty kicks and, uh, and yeah, just absolutely extraordinary. What was the energy like in Qatar? I mean, we could get some sense of it, those of us watching on television, but what was it like to be there in person? Um, astounding. I mean, you, you know, um, I, I was on the air with um, w- with our reporter Carrie Khan from Buenos Aires, and it, it, you know, certainly not as many people as as in Argentina, but it, the the energy was absolutely uh, through the roof. And this was building through the tournament. Uh, it was very interesting that you know, I think Morocco um, established itself as the the fan favorite, being this first. Um, you know, team from an African nation, predominantly Arab nation, at the first uh, Middle Eastern World Cup. And, you know, fans were just um, so supportive of the Atlas Lions from Morocco. But, you know, if if that was number one, 1A was easily, (laughs) mentioning your show, 1A was easily uh, the Argentina fans. Um, You saw them everywhere. And it wasn't just people from Argentina, all over from Asia, um, you know, the locals here, um, they always had a huge, um, a huge fan support. And we saw that last night at Lucille Stadium, a stadium that holds almost 90,000, just under 90,000 people. And the French fans were there, but they were pretty much limited to one section 
um, behind behind one of the goals, and everyone else was an Argentina fan. So inside and outside the stadium, the energy was was through the roof for Argentina. This this entire tournament, and I think because of the compelling story of Messi, I think that drove a lot of it. And how will Lionel Messi be remembered in the context of? The other Argentine great, Diego Maradona, or other legends to play the game like Pele? Um, I think this puts him at the top. Uh, certainly, you know, th- th- there was this kind of greatest ever conversation um, leading up to this World Cup. And, and the one kind of shortcoming that Lionel Messi had was he hadn't won a World Cup. He'd won pretty much everything else, including the Copa America, which was a significant victory for Argentina. That's the big South American uh, tournament. They won that last year. and uh, But he had never won a World Cup. The World Cup is it. And so um, now that he's done it, and, done it and, and did it in such extraordinary fashion, you know, he's 35, but this was not just kind of, I think, as I mentioned um, earlier on, a, on, a, on an NPR program, it wasn't just a swan song for a guy kind of on the downside of his of his prime. Um, from the beginning, he carried Argentina on his back. And so he will be remembered not just for winning his first World Cup, but the way he did it, and really winning. I mean, he went out and did it. Seven goals, three fantastic assists and uh, throughout the tournament. Um, so I think it, at least um, the Argentina debate, I think he... I think he will probably top uh, Maradona at this point because Maradona, you know, burned brightly. But I think Maradona, well, not I think, Maradona also had uh, problems off the field. And I think Messi um, is so widely beloved because he's incredible on the field. And I think people like the person he is. He's he's a fairly humble person, uh, rather shy, um, although he wasn't shy last night. And um, so, so yeah, I think he, I think he scoots to the top there. Well, we heard from some of you about this. Let's listen to Jeff in Louisville. My story is just about uh, the Moroccan team in World Cup Soccer 2022 in Qatar. This little team from North Africa that gave hope to billions of people around the world. It's amazing, and how many people were supporting it, or behind it, and not just Moroccans, all Arabs, all Africans, all Muslims, Asians, almost everybody got behind the team. And that was, uh, that was great. And now that they lost to France, what they're giving back is the hope, the hope that they're giving to, the, to, to, to all their fans around the world that everything is possible. Thanks, Jeff, for that clip. Tom, to Jeff's point, the Moroccan team stunned the globe with their performance. How could that, how do you think Morocco's performance raises the region's profile in sport and beyond on the world stage that is the World Cup? Well, hugely. And, and Jeff raised a good point about how it gives, you know, the, 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 the outsiders, uh, the so-called outsiders in world soccer uh, gives them hope. Um, it, it, there have been 88 semifinalists in the history of the Men's World Cup. 85 of those semifinalists have been from Europe and South America. And so Morocco is only the third semifinalist not from those soccer power continents. But, 
you know, so it did come from the outside. There is this sense, and, and even their coach said, um, you know, called them the Rocky Balboa of the tournament, um, you know, the underdogs. Not quite the little guys. Uh, it, it's interesting to note that 13 years ago, Morocco opened a multi-million dollar national training center called the Mohammed VI Football Academy. And that seems to um, have paid off in, in Qatar. Several of the top players from this World Cup for Morocco went through that academy. And I think what it shows is that uh, for the so-called little guys, that it's not just going to be miracles, it's not just going to be, you know, a strike of lightning, it's going to take planning, it's going to take money, but um, you can do that. And if you <laughs> if you build it, it can come. Tom, while we've been talking about the game, and a lot of attention was obviously focused on the sport, there were human rights abuses and attacks on the LGBTQ community that continue in Qatar. And I wanted to ask you about some reporting you did. You spoke to Piara Pawar of the organization FARE. What concerns did Piara raise with you about the homophobia they witnessed at the games? Well, um, what what concerned Piara is is uh, the 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 flip flop by um, by the Qatari um, leadership. Um, Piara said before uh, before the World Cup began, they had assurances that um, that that you know uh, the 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 message that uh, Qatar gave out was that everyone is welcome, and the implication was everyone meaning. Um, members of the LGBTQ community, homosexuality is illegal in Qatar, and that everyone would be welcomed in. But that quickly changed. Um, it, it, kind of the flashpoint for that was when um, a bunch of European teams had been planning on um, their their team captains had been planning to wear rainbow colored uh, armbands with the words "One Love" on them. And at the at the eleventh hour, I guess you could say, um, they got a strong message from. FIFA, which we are assuming came from Qatar officials, that if the captains went ahead and did this, they would be penalized in the form of a yellow card, which, as you know or may not know, if you're given a yellow card, that's kind of a warning. If you get a second yellow card, you're out. And enough teams decided they didn't want to uh, put their their team captains, often their most important player, in that kind of situation. And so they backed away. Um, that caused, actually, a lot of anger among people, said, well, why back away? This would have, you know, it would have been the ultimate showdown to force feed to actually yellow card these players and you know FIFA would be shown to basically not be you know be not standing for human rights diversity etc um, people who uh, tried to get through security at matches um, uh, had had rainbow colored gear um, confiscated or they were detained um, so that that uh, to Piara power um, was it was a disappointment um, it, it's a complicated thing Nyla um, you know he I, I tried I asked him to connect me with members of the LGBTQ community and many of them um, all of them actually said no they didn't want to do it for fear of backlash they didn't want to go public these people are are, are living their their true lives are hidden but also um, 
there was a feeling of resentment that he talked about that people were coming in with, you know, waving the rainbow flags and, you know, with Western ideas about this, and that while these people uh, want change, they want to live with freedom, this, many of them thought, and they told Piara that this was not the way to achieve it. They want to do it at their own pace. So, obviously, it is complicated, Tom, and there's a lot of nuance here, but just to the point of the players, in particular European players, um, I know Harry Kane was one of the players prohibited from wearing, you know, the armbands. What happens next time? I mean, if there's a last-minute change like this in a game and the teams don't respond, what recourse is there? Um, you mean you mean if if they go ahead and 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 do a protest? Then? Yes. Well, I think I think that's you know that, that, that's the point. Um, that would kind of bring this uh, to a head, and and it would, as I was mentioning, you know, the critics of what Harry Kane and the other captains did by backing down, it would force FIFA. I mean, that is a bad optic. If you start a match and the referee holds up a yellow card to the captain for no other reason than he's wearing an armband that supports uh, diversity, um, inclus- in- inclusiveness, and, and human rights. And, you know, FIFA and the organizers would be forced to face that. That would be a really bad look. I can't predict what that would lead to, um, but it would be a very uncomfortable moment. We're speaking with Tom Goldman, who's joining us from Qatar. Mel Brennan is also with us, a former FIFA official. Mel, uh, welcome to 1A. Nyla, it's great to speak with you today. I wonder if you can take us back to the early 2000s when you first joined FIFA. And as you're listening to this conversation about the last minute changes that happened in this tournament, what was the culture like within the organization back then under leadership of then President Sepp Blatter? So, Nyla, whether it was FIFA under Sepp Blatter or uh, Continental Confederations like CONCACAF under leadership like Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer, there was this similar um, sort of disassociative uh, personality disorder that FIFA was possessed of that, on the one hand, allowed them to speak with feel-your-pain language around issues like racism and other human rights issues. But when it came down to it, to really accommodate entities and experiences uh, where human rights was, was at issue. A great example at that time Uh, And 2002 World Cup, Korea-Japan, was the first World Cup that, for example, the nation of China qualified for. Um, And so you had uh, various uh, opportunities in the run-up to the World Cup uh, for uh, not only China to get practice matches, but for organizations and individuals to lay out their stall to speak to where they stood on the human rights issues. And this, this was at the time that entities like the BBC and Amnesty International were making it clear that uh, China was undertaking uh, 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 efforts like Operation Strike Hard, which was um, harming or killing people, um, and doing that in sports stadia that they qualified for the World Cup in. And so the opportunity that FIFA and CONCACAF had at that time to establish what I was describing at the time as a, a weight, a human rights consideration in their determinations uh, of how people participate in the world's game uh, was a uh, an opportunity that was abandoned 
in the sh- in the face of other priorities that FIFA had then and that FIFA has today. Mel, you mentioned CONCACAF. That's the Confederation of North, Central America, and Caribbean Association Football. What were your primary responsibilities with CONCACAF that exposed you to corruption within the organization? So while I was at CONCACAF, I was the head of special projects, and my focus was on developing the uh, RFPs or requests for proposals that came from entities to participate in things like the CONCACAF Champions League Um, the CONCACAF Gold Cup, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. And as a result, I also served as one of five North American delegates to the 2002 FIFA World Cup Korea-Japan. So um, at the confederation level and at the the world level with FIFA, I had an opportunity to sit in meetings and challenge certain presuppositions uh, around this idea of uh, participation, and uh, the sense of the democratic and the sense of, of human rights metrics. Uh, and what became clear at that time was that FIFA and CONCACAF were both entirely bereft of those types of considerations, that no, no mechanisms, no institutional mechanisms, no external pressure had been brought to bear to even begin the process of having FIFA uh, at the world level or CONCACAF in our region uh, begin to even consider uh, these matters. What we know now, Nyla, is that FIFA does have a, a human rights document with several pillars. Um, that document was executed in, executed in 2017. And we know that, so that FIFA has now made statements along these lines, but that document still does not have any measures or metrics that would have FIFA, for example, uh, to Tom's point, allow this thing to come to a head, right? To to make a decision that, for example, a FIFA tournament would end or would not continue on the basis of the violation uh, of these human rights abuses. Now, some folks would say that that submission is is kind of naive, but what we want to do with a sport that has more national associations in it than the United Nations is to make sure that we are keeping track of the humanity of everyone involved particularly the supporters who generate the resources and economic activity to make the sport in its current form possible at all. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom, as Mel is talking about the past, a lot of eyebrows were raised when Qatar first won the World Cup bid in 2022. How did a country that never made it to the World Cup has less than 3 million people secure this tournament? Well, if you believe the Department of Justice bribery, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, certainly, you know, uh, Mel, Mel should speak about that. I'm not saying, Mel, you're involved in that, but y- you know the inner workings much more. But when the Department of Justice speaks, I think we have to listen. Um, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, pre- former President Blatter um, and, and FIFA officials who, who spoke publicly, they've o- they always talk about taking um, the tournament um, around the world and, and, and giving it to places that, that haven't had it before, this being the first Middle Eastern World Cup. Um, so, yeah, there, there, was, there was certainly controversy surrounding, surrounding it from the beginning in, in 2010. Qatar... I should note, denies the allegations of bribery. Really quick, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, my time from 2001 to 2003 uh, working in world football was followed by about a decade and a half of working to get these folks out, given what I had seen with investigative journalists around the world. Uh, and, and Tom is, is right in saying that the Justice Department with whom we worked um, 
their assertions make it clear that FIFA is organized and has been organized historically around a very basic uh, quid pro quo system. Uh, And so the entities that are involved uh, from the national associations to the smaller uh, groups that make up those national associations to FIFA itself really uh, provide a one nation, one vote process on the basis of what they receive. So right now, uh, Gianni Infantino, who's the current FIFA president, has made it clear that national associations will receive in the 2023 to 2027 disbursement cycle about $8 million or $2 million a year. Um, but FIFA brought in about $7.5 billion. So that leaves about 55% of those dollars remaining um, that we can ask questions about and lacking the transparency that Transparency International, uh, Human Rights Watch, and others are asking for from FIFA, we can have some concerns that the um, quid pro quo nature of how to be involved with FIFA will continue. Um, you know, one of the one of the rules I talk about in Netflix, in the Netflix documentary, and other places is the, the the first law of transparency, and it's wherever we as folks outside the system can't see into an ostensible nonprofit like FIFA. That's where all the lying, cheating, and stealing has probably taken place. And Mel, it sounds like you're saying that you don't feel like that environment has changed very much. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think the energy that we have that Tom described around this final, the World Cup final that took place, you know, we um, we all agree, um, or it's very arguable that that was one of the best finals that we've ever seen, you know, from a power and performance sports standpoint. But that final occurred on the same day as International Migrants Day. Um, it, is, it occurred on the same day as Qatar's National Day. Uh, and uh, Qatar made some commitments with regard to the change of their kafala system. Um, they've talked about notable reforms there. Uh, and it is true that Human Rights Watch and other organizations have made it clear that it does seem that the um, permission from employers to change jobs and leave the country, that that's been de- demolished. Um, but there was also a universal reimbursement scheme that was supposed to take place with the Qatar uh, Local Organizing Committee for the World Cup in partnership with FIFA. And those reforms and those dollars have come too late, too narrow in scope, or weakly enforced, or haven't even come to the workers who built the World Cup infrastructure. And so those workers continue to fall through the cracks. And Nyla, for me, that's an example of more of the same and how we need to continue to fight for reform of this organization and its uh, tournament uh, focus uh, in the days to come. I'm Nyla Boodoo. We'll hear more from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back to the conversation with an email we got from James, who says, I feel strongly that the World Cup should be held in countries like Qatar to bring the spotlight slash scrutiny of the world's press and create opportunities for isolated countries and peoples to interact with many nationalities. In this way, the beautiful beautiful game can be a catalyst for change in places like Qatar. Tom, do you think that happened? Yes, I do. And uh, <laughs> I... I, you know, I was just thinking as you were reading that, um, personally, I've been affected. And I hope, you know, the people from other Western nations who came here How were so, affected Tom? as well. Um, this is the first time I've spent in a, considerable, um, a considerable amount of time um, in a Muslim-majority country, uh, an, an Arab country. And it was just fascinating. I'm, I'm not 
Nyla, I have to get back to the U.S. and I have to take a little time to know exactly what the impact is on me, but just to see the way other people live, other people work, other people interact, um, it was fascinating. And, um, and, and I tend to agree, and, I, and, and kind of on a, on a, on a, kind of a larger geopolitical level than what James is talking about as far as human interactions and learning about other people, um, I tend to be an optimist on things like this, similar to people who work in human rights groups. They have to be optimistic because they're always, at events like this, seem to be fighting a rear guard uh, battle uh, to get these to get their issues heard. But I just wonder about the cumulative effect of having these events: Russia, China, Qatar. Um, countries with authoritarian regimes where these issues come up over and over and over. And each time they ha- it happens, the criticism seems to ratchet up. More and more journalists are talking about this. What interested me about what happened in Qatar is that a lot of times the problems that precede one of these mega events fade away once the sports start. Well, I think for some people that happened, but I was fascinated that these issues, particularly the, the migrant workers' issues, the treatment of migrant workers, stayed with us throughout and to the end. Um, and FIFA was having to kind of push it away and push it away up until the end. And uh, not only push it away, to confront it. And so I have a sense that maybe a cumulative effect of this over and over will will you know, make organizations, will force organizations to think more about the places they're going in and what standards, um, you know, have to be uh, met uh, before they go in. I'm sure Mel has something to say about that, too. (laughs) Mel? Yeah, I don't think Tom is far off in that there is a real tension between the sentiment uh, of the person that wrote in uh, saying, listen, um, when you take... Uh, something that has the eyes of the world in it to a location um, that by itself forces some reconciliation, some change, some sharing of our uh, common humanity. And as a result uh, can move the needle in the direction of um, increased human rights and increased opportunities and protections for everyday folks. What we have to be careful of, is that we are uh, positioning these organizations and doing the work ourselves to make sure that we are not allowing these hugely branded, incredibly invested in uh, sport experiences to create the imprimatur of approval of some of the current uh, 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 policies, behaviors, procedures um, some of the human rights deficits that you might find in a China, a, a Russia, or a, a Qatar. We, we, there's a tension there, um, and you know Tom is on site, and if he's seeing things like every day FIFA continuing at the press conferences to be confronted with some of these issues and inconsistencies and more and more journalists writing about them generally, that can't help but be a good thing because it's important we don't finish this tournament with Qatar's current infrastructure feeling self-satisfied that the way in which they went about the building of Stadia, the way in which they're going about now the universal reimbursement scheme to those migrant workers is okay or at all approved by the world community. 
And then, of course, the next Men's World Cup will be in 2026, which will be held in Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., which is very exciting for North American soccer fans. I've already been planning which games I can go to. Uh, But this is the first time since 2002 the World Cup will be held in multiple countries. Uh, Why did the U.S. and Mexico, both of which have hosted World Cups on their own, decide to go ahead with a continental bid with Canada, Mel? Uh, they've become attractive for FIFA because what you uh, and, and at first, uh, to your point, FIFA was actually against this in its initial configuration. Uh, there was a period of time where the FIFA executive committee uh, did not support uh, tournaments that would not have a singular one nation uh, local organizing committee. Um, but what they found uh, over the longer term is that This aligns itself very much with some of the things that FIFA spends a lot of time on, like media rights, right? So, for example, you have media rights in English and in Spanish um, that aggregate across the continent, right? So they will sell media rights uh, to individuals who will then sell them on for North America, right? And so that allowed FIFA to begin to think about bids that wouldn't compete against each other, Uh, and would uh, give an opportunity for continents to function in the same way that FIFA considers uh, the media framework. In this particular case, what's powerful about the Canada, Mexico, and United States bid is that we have an opportunity uh, to ask the, the, the host nations to speak to some of the human rights issues that are replete in these areas. So when it comes to racial justice or poverty and inequality, um, voting rights in the United States, or we're talking about uh, military abuses or extrajudicial killings, torture and disappearances that journalists have been raising for years in Mexico, we're talking about the rights of indigenous peoples in Canada. We can both enjoy uh, the higher, better, faster, stronger, more skilled experiences that we see at the World Cup and that we saw at the World Cup this year with a challenge to these nations that the same way that we're challenging and are going to continue to challenge what's going on in Qatar and the Middle East, we're going to ask the same questions of ourselves in our own backyard. To that point, Mel, we got an email from David saying, I've heard a lot of speculation about how the U.S. will hold up to the kind of scrutiny Qatar has been under as a World Cup host. I have not heard many people discuss gun violence and mass shootings, which I think is an obvious weak point in the U.S.'s qualifications as global host. How can we get ahead of this? Um, Tom, Mel, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Mel, I, you started to talk about that. Yeah, well, w- one of the ways to do that is to really take a look at how our football, how our soccer is organized and what voices are elevated in that organization. In the United States, the U.S. Soccer um, Conf- uh, Federation is organized in its bylaws uh, due to the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, modified in 1998, uh, to allow for professionals to participate and not just amateurs. But the voices that are elevated within the, the structure of U.S. soccer are limited, right? You, how do you vote and how do you change and how do you challenge the structures of U.S. soccer? Well, you have to be not a part of the widespread support that you uh, rightly noted earlier has grown uh, across the, the past couple decades. Um, but you have to be uh, in a national, in a state uh, soccer association or you have to be a former pro 
and so what we know is that probably two to five percent of those that actually support and generate the resources for U.S. soccer uh, and provide it with a future actually have a direct voice in what U.S. soccer considers and does. So the first step that we can do in challenging that is to look at our state soccer association and look at its bylaws and how to participate and elevate voices within that state soccer association. Um, Those state soccer associations are automatically members of U.S. soccer. And so democratizing further our own state soccer associations gives us a chance to further democratize what U.S. soccer is, how how it comes to its decisions, and as a result, how it considers responding to issues like gun violence or the criminal justice system through the lens of a lifelong learnable like soccer. Tom, I know it's very early days ahead of 2026, but do you have a sense that these conversations are already happening in the U.S.? Um, I I think they are, and um, certainly I hope that within the journalistic community that, that, you know, the the scrutiny will be as robust. You often hear this when, you know, as I mentioned, the recent um, events in Russia, China, Qatar, and there was always a sense that these are Westerners coming in and pointing the finger, and oftentimes the response was, what about your own country? There's always the whataboutism, but I think it's, it's, it's really valid, and you would hope that the scrutiny um, is as strong um, about what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in Canada, what's happening in Mexico, because these things are are everywhere. And, um, you, you know, human rights abuses, they take different forms, um, even in, in, you know, but they happen in uh, so-called democratic countries. So, um, yes, I think that is on the table, and I think there's going to be a responsibility that journalists are already feeling um, that that they have to uh, that, that that they have to do this. Mel, can I just end by asking you what we've been talking about, which is how you balance your love of this beautiful game with all of the ugliness? So there's a there's a writer um, who wrote a book called Soccer and Sun and Shadow, and he says uh, Eduardo Galliano, and he says in that book, I go around the world looking just for a beautiful football move for the love of God. And, and I share that. Um, there's nothing more powerful in sport than seeing someone perform at the highest level and do things that are, um, it's where the super meets the human. Uh, and and, and will never not be impacted by that. Uh, but having been inside this system and seen the misallocation of resources and the failed opportunity that we have uh, to address major issues through the lens of sport, we have to be able to hold more than one idea in our mind at the same time. Uh, On the one hand, we have to be able to enjoy power and performance sport, but we want to make sure we're uplifting a pleasure and and participation lens on this sport that allows people to participate throughout their whole life and that the sport itself, in the way that it's constructed, in the way that it's delivered, is keeping track of the humanity of everyone involved, particularly the most vulnerable. I want to thank Mel Brennan, a former FIFA executive, and Tom Goldman, NPR sports correspondent. Tom, thanks for all your reporting from Qatar this month. Sure thing. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Chris Remington and Chris Castano and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Let's talk more soon. This is Morning.